Greetings, my friends, and welcome back to the Lightfoot Podcast. This week we have Malcolm Ocean joining us, and he and I delve into all sorts of really, really interesting topics, largely focusing in on the non-naive trust dance. So without further ado, I bring you Malcolm Ocean. It is really exciting to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week, and Mm. I would like to invite you to share any kind of song that is inside of your hearts, if if there's one that, that is desired to be shared right now. I am part in interaction on a certain level of abstraction. We call this a soul. We call this a soul. I am whole. I am parts interrelating. All of these parts coordinating. None quite in control. None quite in control. So then naturally, I experience myself to be a unit of being with a name and an identity. I am I am I am Still, I think there's a bigger thing that you and I could be being. Let me let you into the vision that I am seeing. Open up a higher band with your channel between our minds. Be the kind of thing that we can be when we're combined. Stop thinking of a me and you as one and two discrete apart. Start consciously selfing as a non-self conscious work of art build information flows to scaffold our collective brain because without efficient feedback any system goes insane and we want to be safe yeah beautiful ah fantastic thanks that really touched me on lots of different levels, Malcolm. Um, I think we want to be a little yeah, bit yeah, insane well, as well as saying that, right? I, I Something think, tells I think me that we've got enough of that. Not so much with the sanity itself, but with our concept of what sanity is. Like, I think we do actually want to be completely sane, mm. but we we don't want to be the thing that we think of when we think the word sane. <laughs> yes. I mean. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. That was beautiful. Thanks, man. That That basically summed up everything that, I wanted to explore with you today, which is beautiful. Just yeah, well, I mean, that. we could just wrap it there. That's it. Yeah, it was good to have you on the podcast. And, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, take care. You know, good luck, good luck. Yeah. Um, we're weaving the same webs, it seems, my friend, and that's really exciting. And so, let's talk about it a bit. Let's uh, let's compare notes and and, and uh, unpack the different ways that we're approaching this. Uh, 
weaving of these communal bonds between uh, different people around us and also the different parts inside of ourself. That's something I'm keen mm-hmm. to unpack with you is uh, parts I've, I've seen that you've been reading about internal family systems and the song referenced that a few times. And that's really alive for me today. Um, but before going there, I wanted to, uh, I've got a little quote here that I just read. It's a definition of home and community, and I thought I'd share it with you and see how it sits. Mm. It says, uh, a state of being completely known and loved, which empowers one to risk vulnerability and empathy. It is a space of safety and flourishing that one can venture from and return to. How does that sit for you? I know that you've just recently moved physical homes, right? Yeah, totally. Um, I've been thinking about home a lot in a in a few different contexts. It's like I'm I'm encountering limitations of the linear nature of thought because it's like, oh, there's something I want to say about attachment theory here. There's something I want to say about modeling the concept of home <laughs> on like a fractal level. There's something, you know, there's stuff to say, obviously, about my own personal situation of having just moved out to Vancouver Island from uh, from Ontario. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you start with so that? If I can speak on, <laughs> I was like, can I speak on all these levels of abstraction at once? <laughs> yeah. um, that's, that's, that's what I sometimes try to do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I, I came out to Ontario with my, or sorry, I came out to uh, Vancouver Island with my partner, Sarah, um, in the last couple of months. And, there is a sense of like leaving home and seeking home, um, both in that. And I, I've been, one of the the things that I've, that's become a sort of phrase that I say to people, um, uh, lately is I'm building a utopia. I need your help. The only rule is we're not done till everyone says we're done. <laughs> and that to me captures something about the essence of of home it's like home is a place where like if something's not as you want it to be then you get to change it yeah and but of course like okay but if you and me are sharing a home and something is how you want it to be but it's not how i want it to be then well is it home and how is it home and you know how do we make it our home you know as a multi-person system Mm. you know you know if it's just the two of us sharing that space and when i say home here you know i could mean literally sharing a physical um uh dwelling um but there's also a sense in which offices can feel like like home or they can feel like not home right um or uh, a virtual context you know a slack workspace um you know slack the basic thing of allowing people to add their own custom emojis, I think does a tremendous amount to make Slack workspaces feel like home because people can like change them and like, you know, create their own yeah. basic concepts of feelings and, and, and so on. Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, there were ways in which Ontario wasn't, wasn't feeling like home to me and my partner. And, you know, that ranged everything from like the, uh, the amount of snow, in the winter to dimensions of the social situation that we were in that was in which despite a lot of attention to 
dialogue um, and the capacity to figure out collective um, need meeting and so on, um, we were sort of reaching limits in terms of prag our pragmatic capacity to do that as a group. And, um, and so I think it's been really good for us to uh, get get space from there and for them for them to have the space that they have with us with us having moved out mm -hmm. um and uh and we're still we're still kind of looking at the question of like what is that conversation between between them and and us look like long term yeah um yeah so what but is then you know the thing is like we haven't properly settled out here either so that we're, we're definitely like feeling very much in touch with this piece of like home and and not home mm -hmm. uh like live here too like we're not we're not currently in a place that we can like properly settle like we're staying in a spare room at my cousin's place and there's certainly a sense of home to being with somebody who knows my grandmother mm -hmm. like you know um but there's also like uh you know there's the, the space just isn't big enough to feel comfortably home um mm. so yeah lots of stuff like that yeah interesting it, if you could give me a, a bit of a brief description of what what a what a homey type utopia might feel like for you there over in, in your new location like uh would you click your fingers and jump into the kind of smart village that mike and uv are, are trying to create or is it uh something a little different from that speak to me a little bit about that if you would totally yeah i mean i think something like what they're trying to create but somewhere where there's not you know a meter of snow in the winter mm. um would be like a huge start and could i feel like from there could iterate to anything else that felt important although of course a huge part of it's also the people it's like wanting to be with people with whom there's a real sense of like um being able to do that iterative home creation thing so it's like if there's a tension between two community members can we reorient to okay you know one community member is like not able to feel at home while this is happening. And, you know, another community's not members, not able to feel at home while this is not happening. So, you know, is there a thing, is there a way where both of them can be satisfied, you know, and definitely like, like there's a really strong sense in my system that like, like compromise is basically never how you want to think about something. Um, because it implies a sense of opposition mm. where uh, like, I mean, if you think about what the word compromise means in the context of like uh, computer security, mm. right? It's like, you don't want your mm. relationships to be compromised. <laughs> That's true. Right. Like, and you know, and the definition of compromise is like, you know, everybody's a little bit unsatisfied. Well, what, what that means is everybody's going to be slightly fighting the arrangement. And like, that's, that's not stable. That's not, you know, um, so yeah, you know, is there a way without a compromise to satisfy both people? Like maybe they just need to live further apart so one of them can blast music and the other can like have silence, you know, but they're still in the same like larger village or something like that. Mm. Um broadly speaking, I mean, one of the one of the most important things for me really is just that that quality of being with people where those conversations are happening um on a really deep level mm. and I guess on all the levels. Um but I mean, I do I do like this kind of solar punk aesthetic that you're pointing at and mm -hmm. um and i you know i I've, I've felt into a few different varieties and i don't have a particularly clear sense of like what the physical logistics might look like so you know there's part of me that is really tempted to buy a whole island mm -hmm. i don't have the money for that myself but i think it i think the money could be found if if the 
if the mission and purpose were clear and the the group were clear like mm -hmm. um you know um so part of part of me what just like wants wants to wants to have a whole island that can just be like trying to do a game b thing and like have mm -hmm. a kind of you know obviously not self-sustaining economy for or economy in the sense of like being able to like make its own smartphones like obviously not or like even make all of its own food but to even be able to explore what it looks like to have a a semi-permeable economy you know um in that sense that has a kind of autonomy uh feels feels pretty cool um but there's obviously a lot of drawbacks to, to islands as well, which is part of why they're cheaper than apartments in Vancouver sometimes mm -hmm. um, or cheaper than houses in Vancouver. They're <laughs> yeah. not cheaper than apartments, but yeah. Um, I, when I think about inhabiting like a eco village Island with fellow game B oriented individuals, I get a mixture of feelings in my body. One part of me is thrilled and delighted and the other part of me is scared shitless at the concept of most of us not being ready yet for that kind of intimacy, I feel, and thus falling flat on our face. And so a lot of my work at the moment is how do we create context to practice and up our skill levels in being able to sync up so closely Um and mm. I get the feeling that's something you've been working on uh, personally and in a group context for a while. And it seems to have led you in this direction of what you write about as the non-naive trust dance, which is a wonderful blog post you just shared recently telling the story of how you arrived there. And um, I wonder if that's something you'd be happy to talk about a bit more and share with us. Yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting topic and one that has so much surface area that I, I don't actually know if I have a, a default place to start in terms of diving into it, but um, we'll, we'll see where we can explore <laughs> together. Maybe um, I guess first thing to say is something like there's a sense in which all trust is non-naive and like the, the thing that could be called naive trust might be better called faith. Um, <laughs> like it's not actually, but, but part of what's confusing about that is that at a young age, people have their own sense of trust uh, deeply undermined by their parents, by, um, you know, school authority figures and all sorts of other things like that. And um, so there's there's a process of basically coming to reclaim your own sense of this is what I actually think. This is what I actually know. This is what I actually feel. This is what I actually want. And being able to uh, really own all those things. And when you own all those things, part of what you notice is uh, various um, uh, concerns arising. And most people aren't very good at turning their concerns into something uh, constructive or useful. Hmm. And um, th and that's a skill that can be learned, but it's also important on the flip side to learn the skill of usefully relating to anybody's uh, concerns, even if they're coming out in a way that's like, in some sense, really hard to hear. Um, and so... Um, backing up a little bit, there's, there's a puzzle and the puzzle is, uh, it's almost kind of a koan. Hmm. Say we've got a decision to make. Well, how do we make the decision? How do we decide how we're going to make the decision? Who gets to decide how we're going to make this decision? Whoever's better who looking. Who gets to usually, decide? Right? Who, 
right right and so there's 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 like there's all sorts of things like that um you know that end up being like pretty substantial influences on this and of course how the decisions actually get made is not necessarily the same as how people assert that the decisions get made and that's part of where the you know undermine of trust comes in where you're sort of like okay this is supposedly egalitarian and everybody gets a voice but in practice there's actually favoring of a lot of people's voices Hmm. you know and or, or, or by contrast, you know, this person is supposedly in charge, but it seems like somebody else is actually running the show. And it's easy for it not to feel safe to say that. Yeah. Let me, um, let me jump in here for a second. You, you bring in some stuff up for me that I think will be really relevant to this. Um, trust. It's, I often refer to these community collective models that I've been writing about as trust networks. That's really what they are first and foremost. And yeah, it does beg the question of uh, what is trust? Where does it come from? And how do we establish it? And it seems that we've got these structures in this society we have now where eh, they're very hierarchical. They they really limit the amount of trust that you need. That seems to be where we've been heading with our systems and our structures. And in some, you know, you can see why that's happened. That allows for large scale societal models to unfold. But I feel we're at a a point where that's not really sustainable anymore. We kind of need to turn inward. The pendulum needs to stop going that way and we need to start rediscovering trust with each other. But there's kind of, you lose a bit of a competitive advantage when you do that. And I feel our whole meta tribe is really in this interesting space of we're taking these first steps towards this new way of being, but that can dull the edge of how you compete in this kind of, uh, you know, lacking in trust economy that we have right now. Um, And so it's a bold step we need to make until that's actually benefiting us. And I feel that we need to kind of create these little pockets and practice this trusting with each other. But something that you wrote about that I want to put to you here is you you talk about welcoming in the distrust that might occur in these little uh, cultural Petri dishes we're cultivating. And that really interested me. And I, I wanted to hear your thoughts a bit around what does it mean to welcome in distrust? Yeah, well, I, as a as a matter of fact, I was just about to do it to you. Um, so it's like if you if you heard, for instance, that I was starting a something, you know, whether that's an island uh, of people doing you know game B culture experiments, or whether that's a um, uh, whether that's an organization that's going to be trying to make some product that competes with game A organizations, uh-huh. you know, twice on this call in relation to sort of implicitly both of those prospects even though i haven't proposed to you that you join them per se Uh you've expressed a feeling of oh when i hear that idea part of me thinks there might be something naive about that Mm. do you see what i'm saying Mm -hmm. like that that you know your response included a kind of like you know oh there's some concern i have that's right And so the question is like what do we do with that concern um and can we simultaneously hold on to the common ground that we have, you know, which might be, for instance, your excitement at the image of the island or whatever, Uh while also holding on to the sense of like, you having a sense of like, you know, I don't know if we're ready. I mean, I don't know if the people I know are ready. Like, do you Uh know people who are ready? Cause, and, and would I trust you if you said you did, like if, if you said, Hey, I think I know a bunch of people who are ready to do game B on an Island. Mm -hmm. Like, would I just think you were kind of like deceiving yourself and actually pretty naive about the thing? Uh I think it would be pretty reasonable for you to think I was naive. If I said that I thought I had a bunch of people who were just ready to do the thing. Yeah. Um, and 
So there's this funny thing where, and I've, I've noticed this more and more as I get into conversations like the ones I imagine you have with many people on your podcast. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've noticed is that everybody's been burned in different ways. <laughs> yeah. And so their next project is mostly aimed at like, like preventing that from happening again. Uh-huh. And so, and, and some of, sometimes this is like a real big explosion burn. Other times it's just more like, oh, I tried to do a thing in the corporate world and there was just a limitation. We could, we could only get so far because like, you know, we ran up against the, you know, the, well, the company's got to make money and we can't do this social thing. So, you know, and so then you encounter that kind of limitation. So you're like, oh, I'll strike out on my own. I'll do my own thing. Yeah. Um, but, but then you, you know, then other people have encountered the limits of, oh, we just, we, we were just going meta all the time. We never got anything done. And meanwhile, in other groups, it's like, oh, we kept just barging ahead and doing things that didn't make sense because we couldn't stop to have conversations. So there's all these different ways that people compensate for how they have, uh, you know, how things have failed in the past. Uh-huh. And in bringing any group together, you know, you can find a group of people who've all been burned in similar ways and start a new thing where you're all like, yeah, we're not going to do it in that way that we all messed up before. But then that group is probably going to be naive to some of the very things that have burned other groups. So the question is, if you can get a bunch of people who are all, who all have their own different experiences of something, you know, not working, and then you can actually synthesize the collective sense of like, well, we can't do it that way because it'll fail like it did for Bob. And we can't do it that way because it'll fail like we did for Kathleen, you know, and, and you know, for a dozen other people. Well, can you find a thing that actually feels non-naive to everybody? Mm. Mm, that's the question. Um, that's the question. Exactly. And there's no single one answer to it. But but the question is just literally, can you even iterate iteratively design such a thing? Can you hold space for people's distrust um, even when it seems like it threatens the very thing that you find so sacred and important? You know, it's like, oh, but I I know I need this thing because I didn't have it before and I felt so not at home. I need this thing. And somebody else is saying, you know, we can't have this thing. It's like, well, but what are they really saying? You know, is there a way to satisfy both? Yeah. Hmm. I, I tend to, uh, at the risk of gathering together a very hard-boiled, cynical bunch of people, I, I lean towards uh, wanting to co-create with people that have been deeply burned in community contexts. Because I look at it like, uh, I mean, it's like I would rather have a life partner that had been through a couple of really intense breakups just because of that, that knowledge is uh, priceless and impossible to gain in other ways. But yeah, it's interesting you reflect that. It's a thank you because, I, and that's why I bring it up for the reason that I recognize like quite a, and I'm not totally at peace with this almost dark sense of cynicism that has arisen in me since I've been doing such intensive community work over the last seven years. Like becoming an amateur mm. psycho- psychologist and psychotherapist for myself and others in that process I yep. guess I've just drunken deeply from the well of human trauma and my own my own trauma, and I've seen myself act in ways because of the mirror of the community that I'm really not proud of that I might have just avoided if I was following a kind of standard hyper alienated individuated Western life path. So, yeah, like you know, I, I guess I can look at someone and see quite quickly if they've got that look in their eye of yeah, we're human and it's heavy mixed with. And there's infinite potential to dance in new ways. Yeah, like that. yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and and that's the thing. It's like, in my experience, 
when people have any kind of cynical energy, um, you know, the, the thing I said earlier about like people aren't usually very good at articulating the things that are not working for them in ways that like f feel good to hear and are like easily generative. Yeah. It's like take complaining, for instance. Mm. It's broadly considered among, um, you know, even pretty mainstream circles that complaining is like not good, like don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's this, this big movement of like a complaint free world and so on. And they're really onto something because you actually you can't build things out of complaints directly like they don't it, as blocks. They're like really, really awful um, as building blocks. Yeah. But underneath every complaint is something sacred that has been violated. Hmm. And if you can get in touch with that, then it's like, OK, but like there's something really important that needs honoring there. Yeah. And. um. And so if you can, if you can recognize that under every cynicism is a passion to avoid being duped mm -hmm. and you can say, well, yeah, I really don't want to be duped and I want to feel excited. Yeah. Can I have both of those? Yeah. So it's this constant both anding, mm -hmm. um, basically. Yeah. I had a. I had a French partner for six years and I lived there for a while and I noticed just how deeply a lot of French people bond over complaining together. It's like a, a sacred national pastime of like a really deep connection straight away, you know, of like, yeah, that kind of, uh, and it is part of their reforming culture. You know, they don't, they don't put up with bullshit too much. They kind of, they mm. hit the streets <laughs> and it's like, yeah, there's something to that. There's a balance to be had there. Um, Coming, pivoting back to this distrust thing. I want to stay on it for a minute because it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So wow, where, where I keep arriving at is that we need to try and sync up in groups with people that are at the same pace and readiness for that kind of dancing together. I guess that's it in a nutshell is what I've learned. Because if to sit in distrust with someone is edgy and difficult. And it requires both totally, people totally. to recognize their their shadows and be willing to do that. But if yeah. if not both people are signed up for that on the same level, then it can be kind of, yeah, it can actually be kind of a harmful experience in some ways. So I'm in this interesting process right now of kind of wanting to be real and open up and do all that. But it's like, that's not really fair to some people that aren't doing that right now. And I'm having to kind of come to peace with that and I'm, I'm i'm yearning to be to explore what trust and distrust is you know i almost want to break relationships to rebuild them but it, it's it's quite intensive and um i guess i'm in a process yeah i mean if you set out to do that on purpose <laughs> if you set out to do that on purpose it doesn't work very well no definitely um, and yeah i want consent i want to be in this group i want to be on this island where we're doing that together and um yeah, like I don't know when you when you lose trust in someone, I find it's it's a really tricky thing because you've got to kind of what do you do with that? Like, yeah, talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a couple things I'll say there. One is that there's there's a thing that I'm still working out in my own thinking. Like I haven't I haven't gotten this totally clear. Um, which is simultaneously that the word distrust seems to be useful for something, but also uh, there's a different sense in which there's no such thing as distrust. There is only trust. Mm. And 
you know, if you screw me over, it's not that I don't trust you anymore. It's that I trust you to screw me over. <laughs> um, having said that, there is something about like, you know, say, you know, you've got this a kind of classic, um, uh, you know, um, relationship dynamic where somebody's projecting their um, their father onto their partner or whatever, yeah. right? Um, w- one way to describe what's happening there, or they're or they're projecting their past abuse of X onto the partner, or whatever. Hmm. One way to describe what's happening there is that in the person who's who's doing this, you know, quote unquote projecting, they're basically their system is saying, I can't at present tell the difference between you and someone who would hurt me. Hmm. Uh, it, 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 you may be different, but I, I, I can't see it and you need to do something or we need to have a different kind of conversation in order for me to be able to relax into a sense of like, oh yeah, I know that this is not, that this is functionally different from that situation that hurt me. Mm-hmm. And this is very confusing because if you, if you are, you, you're with your partner and they're, you know, they they are sending you an unconscious message that says, I can't tell that you're not my ex you know, again, a lot of this stuff happens in the frames. It's not really in the words. Yeah. Like if it happens in the words, it becomes really obvious to both people usually. But when it's just implicit, it's like they're sending you a message saying, I can't tell that you're not, you know, this person who hurt me in the past. And you're like, I'm definitely not like you can just tell that they are confused about something yep. in, in how they're projecting on you. You can tell that they think you're someone that you're not. And, and you know of course you're not their their ex. Of course you're not their dad. They're, mm. You're not their mom or whatever. Um, Hopefully. And, uh, well, right. I mean, in some sense, you know that, right? Like, um, so it can be really hard to just even acknowledge and create space for this person in some sense genuinely can't tell. And I might trust myself not to do this really horrible thing, but they genuinely can't tell based on their past experience. Mm. And sometimes what, what I've experienced is some of the most basic things um, that show up when people are non-naive trust dancing um, are things where it's like, I can't believe you would have to ask that. And it turns out if you get over your, I can't believe you, that you would have to ask that and you actually answer the question, it can actually be really fruitful. But mm-hmm. so many people get so disturbed by the idea that somebody else would need to ask a question like, so, you know, are you saying that if I don't agree with you, I'm a bad person? Yeah. And you're just like, w- w- of course I'm not saying that. And the, there, there can be a kind of indignation. But if you can set aside the indignation and just look them in the eye and say, I'm not saying that. Yeah. Like, and just really mean it. Now, they might not immediately trust that. And that's part of what you got to navigate. People don't always know exactly what they need. But even literally being able to just take their question seriously is uh, surprisingly valuable and necessary. Um, and very often we just we become shocked that somebody could want could could not know such a basic thing that we ourselves know. So there's something about a kind of humility of like the different knowings that people have based on their past experiences. And that's both personal with this projection thing. But it's also in relation to like the thing I was describing before of like, you know, if we were to describe a hypothetical community, you know, you're going to have certain fears that I'm not going to be worried about at all. Now, I might be naive in relation to my being not worried. Like I might just not have seen how shit can hit the fan in a particular way. Um, 
whereas you know you have or i might actually have a reason for knowing that that dynamic is not going to recapitulate itself or it could be an even messier tangle where actually with you in the group you will pull the dynamic into recapitulating itself because of your very fear of it recapitulating and and that whole crazy psychological tangle and those are really hard to talk about um yeah so that's 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 an area i want to touch on that as you're sharing this with me it's there's a taboo here, isn't there? And I'm always like interested in that. There seems to be a taboo around saying to someone or having them say to you, I don't feel I can trust you in this moment. It's like, I guess because it goes back to our kind of tribal psychology of like, that's trust is everything. It's literally survival. So if you don't have it, it, and it's, so it's hard to talk about and it's hard to be questioned on that even if that yeah. question is deserved. And I guess practicing that is, 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 is a little useful, right? Yeah. And what, so what I would say is, yeah, back in the tribal context, like pre-game A, yeah. you would have, you would have an actual, just basic trust in everybody that is, you know, not a hundred percent deep, but is sort of just completely adequate in some sense, because there's a pretty narrow range of behaviors that people are going to do and, and a narrow range of meanings and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I really don't want to like paint it out as if that was all hunky dory because I think there's actually lots of things that we don't understand about ways in which pre-game A societies were still still had a lot of issues. Sure. Um, but but the thing that they didn't have, which shows up in game A, is a kind of gaslighting that says you should trust me more than you do. Mm. And that's the thing that we that exactly like you pointing at this taboo. It's like. I think it's both socially taboo in a kind of like general sense. Um, And it's also, it's also um, socially taboo. Uh, Well, I mean, it's it's the thing I said before about like, you know, if I trust myself in a particular way, it can be disturbing if somebody else doesn't trust me in that same way. Hmm even though these are just two completely different facts, right? Like I'm like, if we take something very basic, like I might trust that if I, you know, um, do a handstand that I'm not going to hurt myself, somebody else might not trust that about me. But like, that's not personal, right? Like, you know, if you take a basic example, you can see how this is like, obviously these are just two different things. But even with something like a basic physical skill, I, I myself have gotten very disturbed when somebody doesn't trust that I can do a physical thing without hurting myself. I'm like, no, I can. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa, hang on. What's <laughs> yeah. what's getting threatened there, right? Yeah. Um, And so I think like this is one of th- this very taboo that you're pointing at is exactly the thing that the non-naive trust stance as i as i formulated it is intended to um uh completely flip on its head it says the most important thing to be able to say in a relationship Mm -hmm. is i don't trust you Mm. and it's also really important to have that not be a big deal because the reality is we don't trust each other in so many ways yeah and and this is again where, and we could get into some some funny roots here with like um, uh, Alfred Korzybski and E Prime, and um, uh, you know the map is not the territory, and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, and um, what's coming to mind for me right now is this beautiful Russian proverb of uh, you probably heard it: trust, then verify. I, I really I like that right. folk wisdom. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. This is this is related, but it's sort of different. It's like, uh, well, I mean, what I would say is, it's like it's like trust as much as you actually do trust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, so it's like you know, I based on what I know about you, I trust that there's certain topics that we can talk about and I would feel comfortable talking about those, which I wouldn't have with just like if I saw you on the street, but didn't know who you were, like had no context on you. Uh Um, I wouldn't assume we could like talk about various things. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's a verification process, but there's also like a, you know, there's certain things I don't necessarily feel like, you know, we could comfortably go into. I mean, you and I were doing some pretty good banter in the, the messenger thread before this, this call, which, uh, you know, definitely like adds to my feeling of ease Mm. around there um but i guess like you know what i would say maybe instead of trust but verify something like bet what you can bet on the trust that you have Mm -hmm. and you know when that returns deeper trust great when it returns distrust well integrate it you know like have the conversations you need to have to find out what what misunderstanding occurred to generate that yeah um and really important to note here is like with anything like this, you know, some people hearing what I'm saying could be you. I, I'm doubting you. I'm doubting this is true for you, but could be you. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, if, if a thousand people were to listen to this, some people probably have been burned by situations when people insisted that there be conversations about everything and then like manipulated and steered those conversations. And so the idea of like, oh, well, if there's distrust, like reconcile it. It's like also if you don't trust the reconciliation process, honor that. Don't like, you know, you don't have to step into a reconciliation process that you don't trust. And that's part of like the fir- the most important thing is if something doesn't feel safe to you, like listen to that voice, mm. you know, whatever you need to do. And often in practice, with people who are exploring this stuff, it is actually going to just be safe to say, hey, like, I don't, something doesn't feel safe to me here. And it, and it's so important. And this is where I was getting at the Korzybski thing. Mm-hmm. It's so important to note that doesn't feel safe does not mean is not safe, mm-hmm. does not even mean it uh, feels unsafe, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like not feeling safe or not feeling trust is different than feeling distrust or feeling unsafety. There's, it's, it's like an absence. It's like being able to say, I would need something else in order to know that you're not fucking with me right now. Mm. Um, like you might not be, but I, I actually just can't tell. Mm. Like I don't have the data I need. And, you know, I think I, I'm not at all confident that my current like sort of formal explication of any of this is robust in terms of having conversations with like, you know, literal sociopaths who have no empathy and various other like mm-hmm. deeply different things. Um, but I do trust my gut to let me know if this process does not seem to be working in some consistently fucky way. And so if I were to try it with somebody who, whether for sociopathic or just deep trauma reasons, was not able to kind of meet me in this and not able to do that trust building process, it's like I would notice and I would like take a step back. Yeah, basically. So it's like the, the, the. But then there's also a sense in which like somebody else who hasn't been burned as much as I have or in the ways that I have might not know that. And they might, you know, try the thing and get burned and then they would have new experience that they need. Right. Like, so that's the thing. It's like we (laughs) we need to get burned in order to get that non naivety. Mm. And it's like, you know, 
a lot of the burns are still unnecessary because they arise out of being unable to bring our our mutual cynicisms or our mutual complaints or our mutual distrusts into dialogue together to generate something that satisfies both of us. Yeah. And what, what you share that last piece there is kind of, that's what I'm holding on to at the moment because sort of, uh, right alongside this issue of, uh, rebuilding trust is forgiveness. And, um, I've been rewatching the first season of true detective, Lately, have you have you seen this show before? No, it's um from two thousand and fourteen or something. I it's my equal favorite piece of television ever made. The direction in it for me is just just extraordinary, and it's really deep. It's based on the writer Nick Pizzolatto based it on a, a book by Thomas Ligotti called. Um, it's got quite a heavy title, what the conspiracy against the human race, a contrivance of horror. And it's this kind of deep hmm. brooding existential antenatal philosophical argument for the meaninglessness of things, but it's done in a way that's very refreshing. I don't know. It's kind of uh, freeing literature <laughs> and, in a way. And then they made a, a TV series out of it. Yeah. It's like a hard boiled detective series. And the main character, Matthew McConaughey plays him. He's called Rust Cole. And I think it's the, the best acting script writing directing it's for me it's a work of art it's, it's quite dark at times rust cole is a pessimist and he has he has so many good quotes and one of them is that people never forgive they just have bad memories and that for me links in with what we're talking about here the kind of maybe the the naivety aspect that i feel is a part of trust because i feel like Every time I'm trusting, I'm jumping a little bit into the unknown. And there's an element of uh, elective forgetfulness that perhaps I need to employ in those relationships that I have been burned in different ways. Um, and I'm, I'm coming to the point that that's okay because on the other side of that, there seems to be a way that with the right dialogue and the right discussion – you can resonate again, you can heal, you can forgive. And that's a beautiful thing, but it comes back to what I was speaking about earlier, that it just takes both people to be somewhat practiced and ready to do that. So I'm hopeful and optimistic, and I really, I like the energy of what you write about. And I feel like excitement reading about this idea because it speaks to me of like, hey, trust isn't something to be so afraid of if it's lost, can be rebuilt. It can be danced with in a way that's generative and there is a way to, yeah, move past what you're holding on to. So I'm not super of the Rust Cole philosophy, but he definitely mm -hmm. sways me yeah. in the moment because he's very charming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, forgiveness is a huge topic and I, I would locate it under the larger topic of like reconciliation, basically. Like how do you, how, and reconciliation, I guess, being a word for rebuilding trust like hmm. um or uh finding common ground from like f not like uh, so there's there's like there's the experience of co finding common ground when you first meet somebody right you know you're vibing and you're like oh yeah okay we got this in common and we got you know this hmm. shared reference and this shared you know style and whatever but then there's the experience of finding common ground after you have uh lost some trust or lost hmm. some experience of you know, same sidedness or, um, sense of, uh, safety together. And that's a whole different process, right? Like, um, 
and being able to being able to hear each other's complaints without immediately capitulating and saying, oh, I did something wrong is like a huge part of that. Like um, one of the other things I've been playing with and like, you know, I, I, I really want to underscore both for you and for anybody listening. It's like all of these ideas are like I've thought about them a lot and they're big and complex and they're like they're on the edge of my thinking. So, you know, you're very much getting me live outputting like my thoughts on this, not a coherent presentation <laughs> of any kind. Um, and uh, and yeah, but um, what was I going to say? Reconciliation. Have you got any stories? Oh, well, um, oh, sorry, go on. I don't even know if this is what I was going to say, but it's re- it's relevant enough and it, it, fits, it. it fits the slot. So there, there's a thing where, you know, when people ask each other, when, when it, you know, uh, when one person says to another, like, hey, you did a thing that hurt me. It's very easy to feel like your only responses in that moment are to say, oh, shit, I'm so sorry. I, I won't do it again, you know, mm-hmm. or I'll, I'll try really hard not to do it again. Or alternatively, you might say. Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, you might say, you know, like uh, either you're not actually hurt in the way you think you were or like I didn't actually do the thing you think I did or like, uh, yes, I did the thing, but you shouldn't feel hurt about it because of reasons X, Y, Z. Or you might say, look, you, yeah, you got hurt, but like I I couldn't do anything other than what I did, given what you did. Um, or you might say something like, uh, I mean, there's various other so- more subtle ways of deflecting, like saying something like, whoa, like, why are you blaming me? Right. Which on its own is like, well, yeah, maybe the person's engaging in blame as a structure. Mm. But if you don't actually address that, like separate from the blame element of what they're saying, they're trying to tell you about a, a about something that's not working, right? So if you don't actually address that um, structurally, then that'll also produce a sense of like them, that their concern not feeling heard. It turns out, I think in most cases, like except for anything really simple, it, in most cases, the thing that is actually most mature to say in that situation is... I hear that I hurt you. I don't fully understand why my behavior hurt you in the way that I did. Although maybe I mostly understand that. Like often that part's pretty clear. Mm. Um, but then I also don't understand why I did what I did. Like I actually genuinely don't know what generated that behavior in me. And until I understand it, I'm probably going to keep doing this thing. Um, you know, how can we design in the, like, so I want to learn to do something different, but I actually don't know what that's going to take Hmm. and in the meantime how do we design our our interactions to minimize that damage or is this a kind of you know uh a a thing that's like it's an issue but it's not like a big issue and you're willing to sort of be with me in my learning process through that we have no idea how to say that like that's like Mm -hmm. a whole level under the taboo you pointed at of being able to say i don't trust you yeah right like that's it's being able to say yeah i hurt you I want to, I want to do something different. I don't yet know how, Mm. you know, and part of the, part of what makes this tough is that often from the perspective of the person who was hurt, it feels really obvious. It's like, look, just don't do the, the, you know, the the thing, the the thing that you do that hurts me. Like, just don't do it. But, but again, if you don't actually know what generated that behavior, that's like saying, you know, Hey, companies stop polluting. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, it's like, that's not going to work. Like you need to understand what situational factors are driving the companies to do that polluting. You can try to make a law about it, but if you try to make a law about it, they'll lobby against the law. They'll forge documents. They'll, uh, you know, pay off, they'll bribe people. They'll do all sorts of things to get around that law. If you don't understand what's generating that as a need in the first place. Yeah. Um, have, have you got 
some kind of anecdote or story, personal or other, that uh, touches on some of these elements we've been discussing with the non-naive trust dance? Oh, <clears throat> yeah. Let me feel into it. Some some of it's like uh, personal and n- inevitably involves people other than me. So yeah. it's it's a, I'm trying to like sort of scan my brain for like what what's a good story to tell without without checking in with somebody else mm-hmm. first. Um, Hmm. Well, I, <clears throat> I think, I think this one will make a good segue into some other stuff. So I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. So, um, hang on. I got something in my throat. Sure. Bit of distrust lodged in there, maybe. Okay. So, um, so nope, still something there. Hang on. <clears throat> I assume we can edit this out if need be. <laughs> sure. I generally like to share the organic, uncut rawness of the experience. I mean, I mean, I'm fine to do that too. It's I, I, I do actually think that sometimes things do get caught in my throat in ways that are partially psychological, and that's that's itself interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, what if I try relax relaxing my throat instead of like coughing out whatever's stuck in? Yeah. I'm really curious now what the potential story is. Um, uh, <clears throat> well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just try speaking and my voice will be scratchy for the next few minutes. Um, oh, so, so yeah. Um, last summer, uh, a friend of mine and I, um, <clears throat> my friend's name is George. Mm-hmm. We were, um, uh, so I, I run this this business called Complice, which is a kind of um, a piece of software that helps people stay in touch with what's meaningful to, to them on like a day to day basis and like be more intentional, that kind of thing. Mm. It sort of looks like a to do list, but it's very different in structure. And anyway, George has been a, a friend of mine for a few years and um, a, uh, a user of Complice for a few years as well. And last summer we thought, hey, it would be really cool for him to actually do some work on the um on the complice um, app in some in some way, and there were actually already subtle um, subtle experiences of distrust that we were dealing with, even coming into um, that collaboration. Because I'd had a past collaboration where it sort of felt like it fell apart, and I didn't know why, and so I was bringing in a fear that that would happen again, right? And um, and you know these are all the kinds of fears that we bring in. Um, but, um, but but what we did is we actually, this was last summer was when I was first starting to develop this concept of the non-naive trust dance. And we intentionally framed the whole thing, like the whole collaboration within that lens. So basically saying anytime we notice any sense of like, oh, something feels off, something doesn't feel like, you know, uh, <laughs> something feels notably different between what's happening and the, the utopia we can imagine, hmm. you know, something, something like that, you know, um, it's like encouraging ourselves to kind of bring stuff like that in. And so we had a number of case studies where, you know, one or the other of us would bring in a sense of like, oh, like I have a fear that 
you know, if we go, if we go forward with this in this way, then you will, um, you know, do the, you know, you'll judge me in this way or that, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be punished or something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of a really concrete case study. I mean, I guess, um, one that I could particularly point out was there was a particular point when, uh, when George did something from a kind of, uh, George did something that like landed to both of us as really weird. And we were, we were trying to debrief it mm. and, um, oh, oh, hang on. I got a slightly more, more precise one. Just a sec. Okay. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a particular thing that that goes back to school where, there was, you know, I, I was kind of, you know, in an employer ish role and George was kind of in an employee ish role, even though we were holding a lot of fluidity about that. Hmm. Um, and there was a point when, um, George noticed a sense of like, Oh, like I didn't do the thing I was going to do this week, something like that. And there was a, a huge amount of fear that came up for him of like telling me about that. And, what what we realized is basically that like that could trace back to a particular set of incidents in school where he felt like he had to lie about what he'd done in order to not get punished. Mm. It like wasn't okay to only have done what he did. He had to like say, Oh, I actually did more. You know, I read more of this book than I did or something like that. And so that was just like a great example of like George couldn't trust that I wouldn't punish a part of him. Couldn't trust that I wouldn't punish him for not having done enough. Um, but another part of him kind of knew that that was probably safe, right? Yeah. And so this is that thing you were pointing at as like a uh, what I would call a bet and what you were calling like a leap, right? Mm. Like, you know, he made the leap to reveal to me anyway, hey, I, you know, I didn't do this thing. And, um, and that was, you know, that was well received. But then there was a whole arc of processing the disturbance that it was for him to feel like he was going to be punished and that part of him genuinely couldn't tell Again, another part of him could tell, right? And this is part of like really understanding that people are not monolithic creatures who who think one thing about a particular topic. Mm. Like um, the different subsystems carry different knowings. And a, a lot of what I'm saying here, including referring to something like this as a knowing rather mm. than as something like a belief, um, uh, because on the inside, you don't feel like you have beliefs. You just know things, right? Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, uh, so a lot of my understanding here with all this stuff comes from a, a framework called the emotional coherence framework, which is based around the, the science of memory reconsolidation and how ther transformational therapy actually works mm. in terms of like helping people access the underlying generators of their behaviors. Um, and so, uh, so in this case, you know, we recognize that there was a, a kind of energy of how George was bringing something in that was related to this experience from uh, from high school and we actually did some coherence transformational work on it live on 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 a work call you know like it's and this is part of part of what i said would make a cool segue is like part of what i'm so excited about is like blending and merging the worlds of um you know working on concrete projects together and doing therapeutic transformation it's mm -hmm. like that it, like there are certain psychotechnologies that are very not safe to use in that kind of way but if you have, if the basis that you're starting from is everybody honors their own feelings of distrust and unsafety and we go from there, it's like, there's kind of a basis for everybody to say like, you know, hey, like, you know, to sort of pop med and say, hey, this isn't working for me. And then there's like a shared understanding that what that's going to mean is everybody's going to say, okay, great. Like we've got to slow down. Um, 
and the important thing I want to say here is people usually don't say it so clearly. They actually just start freaking out and you have to like pause and say, hey, it seems like some part of you doesn't trust what's going on here. And I want to let you know that that distrust is totally welcome Hmm. because the, the distrust gets so gaslit in the context of uh of school and in other um authoritarian authoritarian contexts uh-huh. that it's not enough to just not reject the distrust you have to actively welcome it because it expects to be rejected and it'll it'll interpret almost anything as rejection um and of course in some cases it'll interpret the attempt at welcoming it as also rejection and you just keep trying you know like and and try creatively like don't try just try the same thing but like you know, or you don't keep trying if there's not the means to invest in that relationship, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, oh man, this is all over the place. This is fun. <laughs> hmm. I'm, I'm with um, you. That last comment you made, yeah. I'm circling back to that one again of this, the tension that seems to exist inside of to, to create a non-naive trust dance partnership with someone, to learn some new moves together, yeah. to stumble a bit, to make some mistakes and to grow. That's a big commitment. You've got to commit to each other because that takes time. It takes care. It takes attention. And it's a bit of a roll of the dice because until you've done that process with someone, you don't know whether they're going to be the right dance partner for you. So there's this kind of subtle process of being like, I see you there. Okay. Or if you're working with them, like let's commit to doing this really wide form of relating, which is going to be a lot more time expensive, but will potentially be a lot more rewarding. But you can only do that with a a select few people in your life at one time. And our modern, you know, workplaces and relationship structures seem to be filled with lots of different people. So I kind of, um, yeah, that's, I guess my journey has been like, Let's do this with 200 people in a collective. That's where I started. That's where I got excited and wrote the book and looked at Inspiral. And I know that you've got similar ideas with your meta organization. But then for me, I've been getting smaller and smaller. Then it was like, all right, let's do a group of 14, then a group of five. And then I've just been working one-on-one with people. And it just seems to go deeper and deeper to the point where I'm like, oh, I think I need to just sit in the community of my own parts for the next six or seven months and then build from there. And that's yeah, totally. kind of in tandem with this, you know, meta crisis crunch yeah. we're facing of feeling like we need to go faster rather than slower. So can you relate to that tension between slowing down and going deeper and other things wanting to speed totally. up? Totally. The way that I like to put this, and I, I feel like somebody else has said this before, but I haven't actually been able to find this quote. So I think it, I think you just attribute it to me, um, is it's too late not to go slow. Hmm. We don't have time to rush. Indeed. And that really kind of highlights something about the paradox. It's like if you're trying to build full trust all the way down, you know, we don't have time to paper over like little moments of, uh, of breaking, right? You know, there might be times when it's not the time to go into it that minute, right? Like, you know, if you're just trying to like order a pizza and and, and you and your partner get snappy at each other, then it's like, well, okay, we're going to finish ordering the pizza probably. And then we're going to like, you know, maybe debrief it later. And it's not that any given particular incident needs to be debriefed. The, re- the reality is life will continue presenting you with 
all of the problems you don't yet know how to solve until you like learn how to solve them <laughs> yeah. before you get them in the first place. Like, so you don't need to go into any particular incident. But as uh, as Richard Schwartz of uh, IFS talks about, like all of these things are trailheads, basically, like any moment of disconnect between you and another person is an opportunity to understand how are we seeing the world differently? What kind of different expectations are we having of ourselves and each other um, mm. that are generating that? Um, mm. So maybe the, so, the non-naive yeah. trust dance is a bit more of a slow waltz rather than a foxtrot, a bit more of a well, close... I mean, that's the thing. It, it really is it really is every kind of dance. And when I say that, it's like, I've been talking with a friend of mine, Eric, who lives, lives out here in BC as well, a bunch mm -hmm. about this. And he's got a bunch of experience doing West coast swing style dancing. Mm. So he's, he's constantly pointing out parallels between, um, the non naive trust dance and West coast swing. And, you know, we're drawing analogies and we're talking about oh, what does leading and following mean? And mm. that could be its whole own other, other podcast and so on. But, um, but he, uh, but one of the things I said to him is like, you know, West Coast Swing has a limit, which is you can't use West Coast Swing as a dance to decide what kind of dance you're going to do, if you see what I mean. Mm. Like, you know, you can use English to decide that, right? And you can use an implicit set of social norms if you're at a fusion dance space, right? Like you're going to kind of negotiate what kind of dance we're going to do based on how people are dressed and who's, you know, who's moving their hips in particular. There's all these subtle things, but you can't use the form to decide whether or not to use the form. Like you've got to somehow something meta to that. Yeah. And so what the non-naive trust dance is pointing at and it, and it is that meta thing. It, it's, it's the way that you, that you can collectively make decisions about how to make decisions together. Like, even though you have a different basis that you're starting from, mm. it's like, how do you sense into that together? Um, well, each person needs to tune into what kind of decision-making process they could trust or not trust, and you iterate towards that. And, um, you know, it's it's not just the utopia that's not done until everybody says it's done. It's like the non-naive trust dance as a framework isn't done until it can dance with everybody. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I mean literally everybody. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that we'll get there in my lifetime, but I am really pointing at, like, the, the difference between, um, you know, the game A cultures where... Uh, the basic assumption is that, you know, cultures are always going to be in tension to the game B assumption where uh, cultures can, you know, coexist and coordinate and collaborate and find deeper, you know, holes by connecting. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, yeah, if say you've got a bunch of people who are like, yeah, we're doing game B, but they can't collaborate with a bunch of other people. It's like, well, they're, they're not done yet. <laughs> it's not done until it includes everybody. Um, and uh, that's a huge, I mean, that's such an absurdly huge challenge, but it's an intergenerational uh, that, task, isn't it? Yeah. I wonder but, then. Yeah, for we're all, you, we're all doing our little pieces. Yeah. Indeed. Um, what does this look like for you practically going forward right now? Are you in some sort of a constellation with a small group of people or a wider group of people? Um yeah um yeah speak to that i've got a couple of like like locally i mean given covid you know we haven't tried that much to connect with other game b people in the space but if if you're listening to this and you know people in the coastal bc area or vancouver island um who are into game b you know um definitely you know uh get in touch and so forth um because we are looking to do you know connect with people locally here mostly we've been doing things online and um that's been um there's a lot of really beautiful stuff to that because you can just like 
Uh, that's a whole thing. What am I, what do, what do I really want to say here? What does this look like for me? Um, I've been working on doing projects with people. I mean, genuinely having something that you're trying to work on, whether that's, you know, like writing some code or implementing a new software feature, or, you know, just my friend and I this afternoon, we were just like reading a document together and commenting on it. And that was just such a way more satisfying experience uh, than like just reading it on our own, right? Because it's like something catches your attention immediately. There's somebody else there to jam with about it. Mm. Um, Do you have a and, number of um, people that you ideally would like to be kind of experimenting with in in the first iteration of the meta organization? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it's like it's different numbers of people at different scales, basically. Like. I want a core, I, I feel a draw to a core group of kind of five to seven, maybe eight, yeah. um, who are like really consciously looking at this meta protocol thing, like really, like really trying to figure that out. But, but also it seems to me that each of those people would want to be working with other people on, you know, small projects or romantic relationships or living together or whatever, so that they can be practicing doing the non-naive trust dance, not just with other people who are saying blah, 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 non-naive trust dance. Um, did I use the phrase meta protocol in there? I don't think I defined that. Uh, meta protocol is Jordan Hall's term for essentially the same thing that the non-naive trust dance is pointing at. Uh -huh. um, and I'm, uh, I'm, so it's I'm also referencing this, that yeah. as uh, becoming community creatures, the, the shift from being social animals towards community creatures. So I'm enjoying, yeah, just how we're all languaging it in different ways, but we're all working on the same project. It's beautiful. I think in two or three years from now to be able to compare notes is going to be really spectacular, but yeah, go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and in the meantime, find, you know, and, and at that time, like finding the similarities and differences and, you know, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? What, am, uh -huh. what is, you know, what am I seeing that Jordan Hall's not seeing and all of the different possible connections there? Um, you guys are engineers as well. I can tell like the way you're structuring <laughs> things is way more systems and processes, um, which yeah, I love, yeah, totally. uh, but it's different yeah. to how my brain works. Um, so it'll be fun to also look at those different approaches. Totally. And I, I think some of those differences will turn out to be aesthetic ones where there'll still be lots of possibility for collaboration, but people are, you know, there's going to be some people who want to live in really hot regions, some people who want to live in, you know, cooler or temperate regions, or there's going to be some people who want to live super rural and other people who want to be totally urban. Mm -hmm. And so those basic differences are going to definitely inform, for instance, who lives together. Similarly, differences are going to inform who works on what projects together. But it's like the thing we need to all be able to speak a common language about is how do we navigate those differences and find out which ones are, you know, not reconcilable and which ones are reconcilable uh, and which ones are reconcilable pragmatically with the resources that we have and which ones are sort of like, well, if you and I both did a bunch of trauma healing for a year about the ways in which we each respectively remind each other of past abusers, then we could talk. But in the meantime, this is just not, you know, <laughs> yeah. not worth trying to pursue. Like, and it's being able why, to just kind of find those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why numbers for me is such an interesting question, because as soon as it gets to scale, I mean, obviously you have all these advantages of economies of scale, the network effects, but I mean, you look at the the big Facebook groups, even the Game B Facebook group, there's a lot of conflict going on in there. And oh, totally. I mean, it's... and that's that's because you don't have the the shared sense. <laughs> I mean, Game B in principle would be a shared sense of how do we talk, but yeah, in practice, what it is is it's a how do we wish we knew how to talk? Yeah, and don't yet. That's and what so I'm pointing at. In, it's in just the mean, it, yeah, it's tricky. 
And I think yeah. it's worth that we're well, focusing on it as a first step. Yeah. One of my favorite phrases in relation to all this stuff is like, uh, what do we do in the meantime? Mm, I like that. And, you know, and it's really important to not reify that because reifying it as like, oh, well, before we have game B, we'll have, you know, proto Bs or we'll have transition Bs. And it's like, well, no, game, game there's C still... was recommended by someone <laughs> even, I think. Oh, um, anyway, the, the important part isn't actually answering the question. What do we do in the meantime with like some definitive answer? It's more like, you know, say you've got some conflict resolution process that you think would help a given community or context, but you can't get everybody to agree on using that context or using that conflict resolution process. Well, what do you do in the meantime? Like, and there's no single answer to that, but the important thing to recognize is that there continues to be a meantime and you need to continue to figure out what to do in it. Yeah. Well, the new PlayStation um, 5 has just yeah. come out, so that could be a handy <laughs> interim toy. Um, I, As you bring this up, I recognize two things. I recognize an excitement around the Meta Tribe. I love this idea of, you know, the few thousand people plus that are on this wavelength starting to find each other through the internet and dialogue and get to the point where with decentralized technology, crypto wealth, just the, the freedom of, you know, kind of digital nomadism that we can actually aggregate in the next few decades and create this or sooner because we're going to need to get a move on. Um, yeah. So that excites me. What scares me uh, is, well, I've become a little bit snooty, a little bit like, you know, one part of me is like a Labrador that just wants to run, lick everyone's faces and be licked in return. And then the other part of me is like, I'm not a joiner anymore. After my experiences, I've been oh, through my oh. naive <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. period of, yeah. of that. And now I'm in a period of, oh, this needs to be done a very certain way or else I'm not going to play. And I'm okay with that. But it's just a tension in that. And I think a, totally, a lot of people are getting there. Totally. Yeah, I, I I said something similar to um, my friend Ali Tatera, and we we said hi to her on a social distance walk on our drive across Canada. She's in oh. Winnipeg, and she was saying something like, "You know, um, you uh, you know, I don't know if you'll find a community to join out there, but there's lots of people you can connect with and stuff like that." And I was saying, you know, honestly, I think we've we've, or you know, speaking for myself, I I've seen too much to join anything at this point. <laughs> um, and I think it's exactly the thing that, that you were just saying. It's like, there's this feeling of like, I couldn't just step into a thing because I would, it would just be so vivid to me. The, the things that would, that were missing from my perspective. Yeah. And, you know, in the meantime, well, okay. Am I going to hold out until I have the means to make a whole thing all from scratch myself? Or is it actually maybe po more possible to spend some time in such a community and see what I can do with my capacity for dialogue in that context, you know, mm. without while recognizing that it is really hard to change the roots of something like the basic premise or purpose from which something arose is it's almost impossible for that sort of thing to change within an organization. Yeah. Um, it will even sometimes appear to change, but the appearing to change is still like part of the original intention, like mm. <laughs> in some sense, like it's still serving that as opposed to the the new thing. So, um, so be, being with both of those, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I totally resonate with that. And I, I'm going to just try saying something edgy because we're, mm -hmm. we're, you know, that's what we're doing and, and what would, where would be the fun if we didn't, 
<laughs> I, I don't know if I have super clear examples, but it's like to even just point at the texture of the thing you're talking about, mm. there's, you know, there's been various moments in this call where I've heard you say stuff mm-hmm. and I'm kind of like, oh, he doesn't get it. Like, mm. you know, there's some and and the, and the same might be true in reverse, right? Like this is not a, you know, I know more than you. It's a, I know different than you mm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, But it's like, it can end up feeling because I'm not aware of the things I don't know. It can end up feeling like, well, here's the set of things I know. And then here's the subset of those things that you know. And so it feels like I know more because I'm not able to see the set of things you know that I don't know and all mm. of that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, one of the, things that i think is really beautiful when all this stuff clicks into place is there starts to be more sense of like oh anyone can be my teacher because everybody is holding these sets of experiences that i haven't had and they are going to you know whether they intend to or not they're going to tend they're going to tend to uh critique everything i'm doing with even just how they listen to me um and Mm. you know how they take in what i'm saying or how they vibe with it or don't or anything like that so yeah um that that yeah it it feels edgy to say i've had uh, that i've had the thought in this call like oh you don't get it (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah that's pretty edgy but good i welcome it um yeah it, Yeah. it, it makes me think that to be aware and cautious of the hubris of not being a joiner because what I feel is like totally there's all, you know what I mean? Like, of course there's (laughs) going to be things that you have and know that I don't and vice versa and you risk losing that. And uh, I mean, ironically, these projects that I'm leaning towards, you know, it sounds like we both are, they are all about that mind meld and you really do need to be open and connect those different experiences and skills. So it doesn't work unless you come in with that level of openness, which is like a delicious irony yeah. because it's kind of like you need to get over that hurdle. You need to integrate that yeah. before you can get what you're after. So um, I'm if you're open to lean into the edge a bit more, I'm, I'm curious to know any particular references or if you want to unpack any of it um, oh, or not, yeah. that's fine. I, I, I love the idea of it. I, I'm just, I'm not sure if I remember the specifics. Yeah. Um, Let's see, I'm just kind of scanning back over the different like stuff that we've talked about. If you can't remember in the context of this call, what I'd be curious to know is what are the general feelings, the general like, ah, oh, this person, uh, not with me, could be with me or anyone like, um, and right, I can give right. you examples as well. Say, um... They don't, they're not emotionally open enough. Maybe they're a little bit uh, too judgmental or what are right, you right. personally? Yeah, this is, what this do you just all these, all these different kinds of things. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes people think that, uh uh oh here's a different a, a different uh I, I just i thought of a very specific like critique i've had of richard bartlett that made me think oh he doesn't get it mm-hmm. um and i was just like oh like would it be weird to just like and, and then this is part of the whole like what's the story of what we're doing right like mm-hmm. you know is this me bashing on him or is this like just the the process of exploring different meanings and understandings um I'm pretty good friends yeah. with Rich, 
And my understanding yeah. of him is that if it's shared with love and care, that he would be open uh, for us to explore that kind of thing. But obviously check in with your yeah. heart and soul. Yeah, I'm going to have yeah, him totally. on the podcast in the next few weeks. So we can also uh, unpack <laughs> Malcolm cool. if you want yeah, in yeah. return. But yeah. before you go there, I, cool. this is it. This is what I want to be doing. I want to be in communication with each other. What is it? Help me see. Like I want to know what I'm not getting so that, because there could be a gem in there. There could be something that yeah, really yeah. unlocks. Well, I, me. I mean, I do. I do think this one is a gem, and I've been meaning to uh, to write it up. And I actually, uh, somewhat intentionally, because I was about to have this call with Richard Bartlett, I was like, oh, l- let me meet him face to face first before I write up this particular critique of a thing that he said. And and the thing is around power. And uh-huh. I, I, you know, I'll do a whole proper um, debrief of or um, deconstruction of this this framework later, but. Um, have you heard people use the the distinction of like power over power with uh, power yes. to something like that? So, um, so Richard has referenced this a couple times, um, and uh, the 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 one in particular that made me go wait what um, was I think him on him being interviewed or something by the by Mike and UV. I forget if it was future thinkers though, or if it was more like there's one of their summits or something anyway. Um, and so there's this, there's this thing of these different kinds of power and people sometimes, uh, conflate power over with mm-hmm. explicit hierarchical power. Mm. And this is a deep, deep, deep confusion. And one that, uh, I and many other people have been burned by and, and so there's something really subtle where, uh, and so, 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 so people will kind of distinguish power, um, power over as being kind of, you know, coercive or like hierarchical authoritative power and power with as being more kind of like social power. Yeah. And so they'll say, well, yeah, I have a kind of power in this group that you don't have, but that doesn't mean it's power over. The way that I would put it is that these are actually two different layers or different dimensions. There's social power and there's formal power and there's like physical power, right? Like, you know, who would win in a fight Yeah, is like sometimes relevant, but like is probably not relevant to your and my conversation right now because like we're, you know, a continent away, right? Mm. Um, so, so any of these can have a power imbalance, right? Mm. Like you might have one person who could win in a fight against somebody else, but the other, but the person who's physically weaker is way higher status in that group. And if, if somebody were to, um, attack them, it's like that person would, you know, immediately lose a much larger contest. Yeah. Um, and you know, to take a really very, very basic example, um, and, an and important one for of... me, though, because I'm a relatively small guy, and I thank my lucky stars that I don't live in a brute force society. Right? But yeah, yeah, totally. Come on. <laughs> and so, um, and so, so this is an example of two different power imbalances that uh-huh. that are present at the same time. And for for me, the way that I would try to instead recharacterize power over power to and power with is um is something like um power to is just the ability to do something like independent of whatever whatever every, anybody else is doing like you know can i play a song on my guitar like yes i have the power to do that um 
uh, power with is like something I can do with other people, but not alone, you know, so can I play a whole song as a band? Well, obviously me as me on my own can't do that, at least not without a loop machine. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I can do that with other people. Power over is any time my preference gets to trump yours, wherever Mm -hmm. the source of that power is. Mm hmm. Um, and so that could be social power, you know, it could be, I get to like call you a kind of like shitty name or like some subtle thing in a social group. Mm-hmm. And you kind of know that if you like call me on it, everybody's going to side with me instead of you. Or yeah. it might not even be something so overtly shitty. It might just literally be like, you know, I'm setting the agenda, right. And you don't get as much say and nowhere is that ex- explicated. It's just like in principle, people do what this person says, not what that person says. And so even with these really subtle social kinds of power, um, and I guess like, you know, you could maybe point at some kind of intellectual power, various other like dimensions of power, but even within those really subtle layers, there can still be absolutely power over. And those power, what those power over dynamics do is they mean that certain people's needs get go chronically unmet. And there tends to be a, a thing. And I really don't like the word gaslighting because it itself it itself is so easy to weaponize. Um, mm. But if if you'll if you'll allow me for a moment to just point at gaslighting as a structural phenomenon, which uh-huh. is not blaming any particular agent as doing the gaslighting, but just the uh, the phenomenon of people uh, having their own sense of what they know and what they feel and what they need made um, not uh, acceptable. Um, uh, like not not just not acceptable to express, but not even acceptable to even fully acknowledged to themselves. Mm. Um, this happens a ton in groups. Um, many people have observed that if you're hanging out with certain people, certain thoughts are really hard to have. And it's like, what's going on there? Well, there's a kind of social power that that person is exerting over the group that is not due to any particular official status necessarily, and is not due to any particular uh, physical status necessarily but is just a result of their social power and perhaps their power to express their own frame uh of reality um in ways that are hard to um to contest so anyway um when i hear people conflating uh power with with social power i'm like no 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 no. these are very different things um and i uh that's that's a thing that causes me to go, oh, this this person doesn't get this thing. But then again, this is a really subtle thing like this. You know, most people don't get this. And that's why I need to write a blog post about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel you. But but that was that was the thing that I saw Richard uh, being from my perspective confused about. Um, yeah, definitely. Power. Wow. Yeah. It's um, it's right at the heart of what we're talking about alongside trust and in these new contexts. I mean, it's it's what we're trying to play with is what we're yeah exactly and so words do. you know it's like power and trust and all these things you know um need to kind of go up a level of abstraction and really be able to be deconstructed and reconstructed and uh worked with consciously rather than having them be in the background and so that's i guess the the thrust of the work that i'm doing um yeah <laughs> and mostly just in the form of having conversations with people writing up my thoughts and trying to organize um the different things things I'm seeing other people think about it. Um, yeah. Beautiful. I love it. I love the way your mind works, Malcolm, from what I've experienced so far, the synthesis going on. Um, I get the feeling that there's, there's so much happening in there that we've barely 
touched on and it's yeah it's marvelous thanks for opening up and sharing some of your newest fear with me today and um yeah. looking forward to reading more about these ideas in in written form I appreciate your thinking in draft courage here to really kind of dance around what are just emerging ideas for you so totally thanks, yeah and I've, I've been trying to do more of that with with writing as well um mm. you know so I, I have my I have my blog where I post things that are at least somewhat finished of some form uh and then i have my my rome blog which is just like a, a public rome graph where i'm just typing stuff and you know not not worrying about trying to finish it but just interlinking all of it and so that i've been very much leaning towards creating more surface area for other people to connect with me in the world um yeah yeah what's the best way for people to find your work and connect with you yeah, I mean, the most sort of direct way is to hit me up on Twitter at Malcolm underscore Ocean. Uh, it's important to note that Malcolm has two L's in it, like Chisholm or Lincoln or the word calm, M-A-L-C-O-L-M mm -hmm. um, -E underscore O-C-E-A-N uh, is me on Twitter. And then there's links there to, you know, my, my MalcolmOcean.com, which is my blog. And uh, 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 there's not an obvious link to my Rome blog, except you can you can find it at intertwingled.blog if you can spell intertwingled. And if you've got show notes, we can throw all this stuff in there. So Yeah, I will. Thanks, Malcolm. Really appreciate your time today and look forward to uh, continuing the, the dance together in the future. Yeah, sounds good. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Show notes are available online at www.joelightfoot.org, where you can also find more information about my book, A Collective Blooming. Music by Johnny Eagle. Until next time, be well, my friends. 